In today's episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast, we're talking to Alistair Byrne from State Street Global Advisors about what value for money means to him. everybody to the 38th episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast. And as ever, I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, Darren Philp. Hello, Darren. How are you? I'm, I was going to say I'm well, Nico, um, but I'm going to say I'm, I'm, glad to, I, I'm, I'm glad to be joined by, by, by you, obviously, and, um, and we'll introduce Alistair in the moment, but I'm feeling a bit under the weather. Yeah. yeah. Um, we yeah. were meant to be doing this in person, but um, I was, yeah, I, I, I was doing some work. I, I actually I was having um, banana on toast. Yeah, oh, believe lovely. it or not, that, that you know, Classic. and bad banana on toast yesterday for lunch, and yeah. lost half a tooth. Oh. Yeah, so been frantically trying to get a, a dentist appointment to to sort yeah. that out. So I'm in a bit of pain. Yeah. So you got a 2025 uh, appointment. <laughs> what's uh, the, what's well, the I, prognosis? I, 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 no, I did one. Um, I was trying to get um, an appointment at 2:30. Oh, yeah. um, but you know, for bumps. <laughs> But, you know, I, know I have got an appointment for tomorrow, so hopefully I'll be fighting fit for the PLSA next week. And, and also, I woke up on a Monday morning with a crooked shoulder and a crooked neck. So I've been really under the wars this year oh, uh, or, or this week. And um, they say these things coming freeze. And I'm just hoping, um, you know, the the I'm trying to think of the word to use the. Um, Let's just call it the blog, yeah. That Mr. Tapper posted off, 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 off the basis of the last one was the first of the the free events that coincide with, you know, oh, they, they always say that things come in freeze, don't they? So yeah. I'm I'm banking on that one, and I'm hopefully going to have a good week next week. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. So is he is he the crook in your shoulder or your neck? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, I think um, yeah. Well, it's just you know they they say toothache is the worst, but you know um, I think it's all about the comparator, isn't on this, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. It's light relief. Okay. <laughs> um, so look, delighted uh, uh, this week to be joined by Alistair Byrne, uh, head of retirement strategy uh, and UK institutional distribution at uh, State Street Global Advisors, so SSGA. Uh, Fantastic career. Um, I'm sure we can talk about whether the highlight was working with me at Towers Watson, but uh, Alistair, you are most, most welcome to join us. How are you? Yeah, very well. I think much, much better than Darren by the yes. sense of it, but you know, yeah. delighted to be on the podcast. Uh, disappointed not to be in the pod with yes. you in, 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 in person, but uh, you know, uh, all good sitting here looking at the rainy streets of Canary Wharf from my office window, <laughs> but you know, very much looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, yeah. If, if we'd been in the pod in the person, then we'd have been under the weather, literally. We would, <laughs> at, yeah. At yeah. points. <laughs> I would like to say it's sunny here in Tunbridge, but it's not. <laughs> You're under the same cloud as the rest I of am. us, mate. Yeah, yeah. It's a, big, <laughs> it's a big cloud. It's a big cloud. 
<laughs> so yeah welcome Alistair great to see you again um I thought Nico was going to talk about when you were working with him at People's Pension because I know mm. um he wasn't quite your boss but you know he was your <laughs> he was your CEO CIO CIO I was going to well, say about my career I've had some very good bosses and I've had some very good clients and in some cases they were the same person oh, oh that's very sweet that's very I thought you sweet. were going to say I've had some very good bosses and very bad bosses and we'll but we'll come on to that a bit later on I'm sure but anyway we digress we digress <laughs> Um, um, we start with the news and um, as is guest prerogative um, what have you got for us Alistair? Uh, you said one I've actually got two is that okay is oh, that it, this right? is it, this is a trend I, I guess keep bringing two news items um, and obviously it's uh, to, to, to shut me and Nico up which is absolutely fine go for it uh, and impossible yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's a, a buster but yeah I found it hard to choose so the, the, the first one is from our friends at LCP and some uh, research that they've published and uh, the strap line of that is the, the defined benefit pension transfer market is in slump uh, and they're, they're highlighting an exodus of specialist advisors so those that have the permissions to do DB transfers mm-hmm. uh, and also the decline in transfer values given what's happened to to interest rates and the, and you see both of those as you know significantly reducing you know I guess both the ability to do transfers but also the the demand side of that and you know that all makes a, a lot of sense in terms of what's been happening in the in the marketplace you know the the regulatory concern about transfers and then obviously the you know what's happened in the actual financial markets and the impact that has on the just the numbers yeah. involved and kind of got me just thinking about the db transfer market uh more generally that you know quite clearly it's in the interests of some people to mm. transfer they might have you know issues with spouses benefits they don't yep. need or it might be some you know covenant concerns about about something but uh you know as, as nico knows i've spent a lot of time looking at behavioral finance and there's mm. a there's a lot of behavioral pitfalls in this one as well you know offering people very large lump sums of money to give up what looked like very small streams of mm. of income you know it's mm. very very sort of seductive from a behavioral point of view you've got money illusion yep. got issues about time horizon that you know the payments stretch stretch out into the future i think it's a hyperbolic discounting is one of the terms you know, yeah. really don't don't give a lot of credit to the payments they'll receive uh, in the future but you know roll forward to your late 70s and your 80s and you might be you know very appreciative of those regular monthly payments mm. you're probably underestimating your longevity so mm. you know you you think the lump sum looks attractive but you you're not really thinking about how long it has to has to kind of sustain you Mm. for so you know i think i think that you know that that's all quite difficult stuff it's interesting if you look like you know the us dc market the australian dc market you know there's a lot of work actually on you know more mature dc markets think well how do we get this back to having an income frame how do we get away from the lump sums back to Mm. you know an income for for life and you know converting that lump sum to to uh you know long-term incomes have been described as one of the hardest problems Mm. And, and 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 finance and you know sort of voluntarily signing up for that hard problem seems uh seems you know <laughs> not, not 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 the right direction so you know that that that, that was the thoughts i had from that news story it's interesting mm. that the, you know it looks like the, the edge has come off that market you know that that might be a good yeah. thing yeah um, a, a, a couple of, sort of observations like the all of those academic terms that you used Alistair around hyperbolic discounting and all of that and the presentation of information is obviously going to be a huge challenge for the pensions dashboard 
Mm. Um, so, you know, DB schemes will be on the dashboard, Epsible DC schemes, um, if and when we eventually get the dashboard. And we've got Richard yeah. Smith, who's going to come and reveal all in, yeah. in, a, in a future podcast, which would be great. But I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, he's argued for quite a lot is you've really got to test this and you've really got to understand how you're presenting the information to people because the um, the ability for intended or indeed unintended consequences is absolutely quite huge. Yeah, and it's all in the presentation of the material. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that, you know, they, I, I would always say that, you know, people have the right to choose. Um, for some people, it will be in their interest to, to cash in their DB. Yeah, but they need appropriate advice and they need um, the information presented in a in in a, in, a, in, a, in a good way and in, a, in an open way and pe for people to really understand the implications of their decisions. I'm, I'm imagining like, you know, from the advisor's perspective that it's just too risky for them now, isn't it? You know, you've got the FCA breathing down their necks, um, quite rightly so, because some of this stuff has been missold or misadvised or, or whatever. Um, but equally, I'd imagine, you know, um, getting PII insurance, professional indemnity insurance for, you know, DB transfers, it's, it, you know, it's got to be quite a whack, I'd imagine. Mm. Don't know the stats, but, you know, yeah. that's probably forcing a lot of um, advisors mm. to to think, well, you know, do I really want to be involved in this? Because, you know, there's a risk reward trade off here um, and there's a lot more risk than there is a reward. The report's got some numbers in it. So the LCP got, went to the FCA and asked about the number of advisory firms that have the permissions and it's gone from 3,000 to 1,000 right. over wow. four years. So it's really quite wow. dramatic. You know, yeah. Those will be smaller firms, but a quite substantial reduction in capacity. But you, your point about presenting information, you know, one of the things that behavioural finance tells you, there isn't a neutral frame. There's mm -hmm. almost a nudge in there somewhere. So yes. incredibly difficult to, to frame things neutrally. You, you know, got, always got to look at things and think, well, what is the nudge? You know, if someone yeah. approaches this, what, where, where is it going to guide them? And is that mm. the place that we that we would want? Yeah, pa passive endorsements. Isn't it? there's, there's, so if you provide any information, somebody's going to be scanning it to say, what do they want me to do? Um, <laughs> so you better be in control of that message, which was, sort of, was, was what I took from that. I mean, I, I just wanted to say one thing on DB transfers, which is, it's always seemed to me a weird decision to put in front of people to make it yes or no. Mm. Um, where the true answer is, how much should I have in this sort of essential spending you know, some sort of Maslowian hierarchy of needs type place to augment my state pension, uh, be inflation linked, um, albeit uh, limited uh, in these high inflation times. Um, and then the surplus to that, I think, you know, more freedom to do more with what you want, right? I mean, we have the opposite problem in defined contribution, but that sort of the monolith of basically taking all of your money or none of your money, I think, probably makes this quite dangerous to advise um, yeah. because, you know, it's basically if you spend all of this, you're falling back on the state pension and that might look like poverty to you. Yeah. Um, but if you could split it into, OK, I'd like £5,000 to come from my DB and that will top up my state pension and the rest should be cash to do with what I will. Um, that would make things probably easier on both sides. And, and and actually, if you look at where the DC at retirement debate is going, mm, it is about mm. blending and mix, mixing and matching. So why can't you do that in DB as well? Um, mm. I don't know if you can do partial DB transfers. I 
you probably you can. can by law by law um, but, 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 but the trustee and rules and the policy uh, may either of them may prevent it yeah um, so and, and i the, wanted to do a db partial db partial transfer from my Barclays savings where I had DC alongside of it's not final salary DB it's cash balance, cash balance um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I wanted to leave the cash balance behind and take my DC savings and they said no um, and I think there was an incentive back in the days of what we you know gosh only 12 months ago pension scheme deficits um, you know you wanted everyone to take it out because essentially the bid offer spread on how you value it versus the you know it seems like a huge amount of money but actually they're reserving more money for you mm-hmm. or believe that they should be funding more money for you so encouraging people to leave um actually creates a little surplus um and so therefore kind of creating the incentives around just just take it all and we'll get that full surplus thank you um i i mean i, I don't know if this kind of um the fire singleton spoke to us about the kind of surpluses now in in db and that that possibly keeping the kind of dc single employer trust market open for mm. longer um so i don't know if that kind of position on transfers would have to change um it's a long time since i've looked at my defined benefit actuarial uh, uh pricing of cetvs and all that kind of stuff um but some sort of distribution of surplus might reverse that that kind of narrative um but yeah no it's uh it's a very interesting interesting study by lcp so two-thirds of the advisors have dropped out of the market that's advisory my headline right advisory firms so probably the bigger ones stayed in because they've got the the compliance in the systems but i think the one-man bands will have dropped out when they got the pi quote yeah (laughs) so yeah can i do my second one you, well, I was going to say you 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 were a bit cheeky, weren't you, Alistair? You're getting in there first, um, so yeah, go for it. What's your second one? Second one. This is from good friends at Standard Life, and their study finds that the age 36 marks the turning point in retirement planning. And, and what they mean is that above 36, they find people making more than the automatic enrolment minimum contributions. And they kind of go on to say that you know people are more financially settled in their mid 30s. You know, probably a little bit more sort of focused on the future. Uh, and they're they're picking up in in some data they've looked at that they, you know that they can see that in the in the contribution mm. rates and you know that just got me thinking about sort of life cycle financial planning and mm-hmm. you know how, how how you manage contributions and you know obviously we've we've done great work in the UK with the the automatic enrolment program you know talking now about bringing that down to younger ages which I think makes a lot of sense the opt outs always there for for people for whom it's it's not appropriate. We're re-enrolling people, which I think is good because, you know, certainly the time might not be right for someone, but, you know, you've got to give them the chance, you know, a few years later to come back into the system. But, you know, all of that hinges off the the standard rate of contributions. And, you know, for a lot of people that, that won't be quite enough. So, you know, how, how do you deal with the, 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 you know, getting an increment to that mm-hmm. and, and hoping that when people reach their 36th birthday, they suddenly think that they should go and make, you know, up their contribution rate. You know, that that's 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 quite unlikely. So what can we do <laughs> as an industry and you know institutionally uh, to promote that? And again, you know, back to the behavioral stuff, obviously save more tomorrow mm-hmm. and it has been promoted a lot. It's not it's not been widely adopted here yet, but you know, I think there's there's still some value in that. But you know, a lot of design details in terms of how you implement that, when you implement it, what sort of levels you yeah. take. But I think there's that sort of auto escalation or at very least you know nice simple nudges that, that get people to consider their contribution mm-hmm. rates and that, whether they're at a, a stage of life when they can they can afford to to pay more you know they've gone the housing ladder or yeah. you know, they, they're, they're more sort of financially comfortable i think these are some important issues that the, 
the standard life study uh, you know kind of bring, brings to bear with its very precise findings of uh, yeah. age 36. But yeah, I was uh, really interested to hear that because so I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to claim it as my story, Darren. Uh, but there was a, a pensions age story uh, based on interactive investor research, which is actually really about the gender pensions gap, um, but uh, kind of highlights the opposite finding to what you said standard life's finding was. Um, so about halfway down the article, uh, pension savers uh, between 35 and 54 are paying 75 pounds less into their pension each month compared to those 18 to 34 um, and uh, middle-aged pensioners um, 169 uh, pounds less when you take employer contributions into account um, so yeah interesting who knows how settled these numbers are right <laughs> so so is your conclusion there Nico that no one knows what's going on well, or be careful, was it lies, damn lies and statistics? Um, so I think be careful with your sample. I, I, I don't know uh, the samples that Standard Life used or Interactive Investor, uh, but it sounds like they're talking to different segments of mm. the population to me. Mm. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, a big fan of Smart, um, Save More Tomorrow, the, the kind of auto escalation. We've discussed it a bit on this podcast. Um, how you do that as you transfer between employers, I think, is a, a kind of critical well, topic. Um, so I agree with that because I think that, you know, save more to more from a, you know, um, a behavioral economics perspective, a academic perspective. There's a lot of merit to it. Yeah. And you can see employers who embrace this. Yeah. And can um, piggyback off pay rises or promotions or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, um, you can see it really working there. Yeah. Um, but it, again, it comes down to between, you know, employers that want to look at some stuff like that can see it as a, as, as part of the reward package versus then the mass market. And we and we need to remember that, um, you know, there's probably a million small employers out there who are just doing the bare sort of pensions minimum. And I think that, you know, when we talk about things like Save More Tomorrow, then we need to think about how we can introduce something like that or use concepts like that system-wide yeah. not necessarily just focused on employers that are already you know caring about this thinking about this who have got that right wider reward package yeah. um yeah. My, my only other comment is you know i'm quite depressed about the age 36 because it just shows i've totally missed the boat <laughs> um so anyway <laughs> still to come still to come down <laughs> i mean i was just going to chuck in another thing so um uh, I think it's both Germany and Switzerland have defined contribution rates set with sort of actuarially equal benefit, equal income in retirement measures. So essentially you get a uh, exponential curve of contributions which start very low when you're young and, and, and get much, much higher when you're when you're older. So um, it's quite interesting how different cultures define fairness. So we 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 have a sort of fairness. Um, age discrimination would mean putting uh, a different amount of money in uh, for the young and the old. But for that sort of German Swiss culture, it means putting a different amount of income out of the mm. pension system mm. for the young and the old. But if you had something like that, potentially for employer contributions, potentially for your uh, auto enrollment contributions, um, I think the actuaries would support it. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe that kind of automatically gives you that kind of smart ex escalation kind of methodology. It's, it's from, from a different rationale, right? So I understand it's not the behavioral finance piece, but um, yeah, I think we should chuck that onto the table of our, our pensions commission, Darren. <laughs> 
in the Netherlands is quite interesting. They've had that kind of age-related contributions, higher contributions for older people, and then they're moving more to a sort of flat rate mm. profile, which is all the controversy of, you know, people at different cohorts, you know, seeing the deal changed on. Yeah. So there's a, you know, a lot, a lot of work to be done there to put that yeah. new system in place. Yeah. Yeah. So you've had your news story, Nico. No, no. <laughs> I've got two. No, I haven't. Oh. Um, but I do have a game. You have a game. So, yeah, is this, so wack- is this wacka day? Yeah, so a few weeks ago you you did Timmy Mallet on us. Um, so, uh, but it, it's only a brief game, uh, and it's it's tangential to my story. So, um, uh, you'll recall, never mind the buzzcocks. <clears throat> there was the lyrics game. Um, so this is I'm going to give you some clues. This is from Billy Joel. Um, so here we go. On the floors of Tokyo, or down in London town to go go, uh, with a record selection and a mirror's reflection. <laughs> you don't know. All right. I haven't got a clue. Uh, Alistair, so, is, is this more your st- type of music? Uh, be- be- Belly was not really on my, my playlist, <laughs> so I can't, I can't help. So that is, I'm dancing with myself. I'm dancing with myself. Okay. I'm struggling to see how this is going to be relevant to a well, new story, but I'm sure you're going to fill in the gaps, yeah, Nico. So, so it, this was triggered uh, and has been going around in my head since I read in the Financial Times, I think on Monday or Tuesday this week, um, private equity, UK private equity firms sell assets to themselves um, as exit routes dwindle. Um, so this is the story that instead of doing what private equity has previously done, which is essentially maybe take companies private, mm. uh, reform them, uh, potentially load them up with debt, pay off the debt and put them back onto public markets, yeah. uh, that exit route is no longer available. So they're setting up what's called continuation funds um, and uh, pricing the assets themselves. So not letting the market price those assets, pricing the assets uh, and pushing them from fund A where you have uh, a set of investors who therefore get some sort of two and 20 haircut on their returns uh, and putting them into fund B. Uh, And of course, uh, it's plausible that you could uh, do this morally. There's obviously kind of conflicts of interest in this process, and there's a whole kind of other conversation about auditing and um, consistent valuation mechanisms. Uh, but my main kind of route to talk about this is obviously the Mansion House Compact um, and the desire to have a liquid assets. Uh, who do you think is going to be buying Fund B? Uh, would be my kind of question. Um, obviously, uh, it's the one that's available. Maybe you put lower terms in terms of your two and twenty on Fund B um, as this sort of ongoing, no, no longer needing radical overhaul kind of uh, asset class. Um, so yeah, potentially the DC schemes are getting this this uh, potentially overpriced asset uh, pushed into Fund B when um, you know it can sit in the doldrums for ten years and then be fold, sold back into Fund A at a lower price so that you can do that kind of transformation of the business again who knows but um that's now the preferred route um i just need to open the article up again but um yeah research by numis uh so the the, the kind of brokerage of uh 20 uh, senior uk-based uh industry professionals so a bit of a worrying trend um possibly less so for private equity because you know <laughs> it keeps it keeps the pipeline going um, but for private equity investors, I think that that would concern me. Yeah, that's an that's an interesting one, isn't it? So, do you like my link to Billy Joel? I, I do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I do. I um, 
yeah, I want so, to, the, the, the private equity piece, I want to come back to that. I've got my value for money comment a little oh, bit later. And yeah, I think it'll well, okay. to that. So we'll, yeah. we'll come back to that one. So we yeah, don't okay. want to do your funder. But no, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? So so are the, is, is this fund B, mm. are, are, are the private equity managers thinking, OK, how can I make these funds be suitable for pension funds? Or is it just we're putting them into fund B and, yeah, we'll just see what we can sell? No, so it's fund A has a uh, shelf life. Um, so yeah. it is set up as a probably seven to 10 year distribution. Uh, and as you're getting towards the end of that and you're expecting it to return cash to the the original fund A investors, what are you going to do with the assets that the market won't accept me listing? You know, there's a whole other listing discussion about IPOs and you know, very, very suppressed IPO activity, particularly in the UK. Mm. So what what else might I do? I might sell them to another private equity house. Um, I might seek to merge them into other businesses um, or split them apart and sell them to other businesses. There's a whole bunch of M&A activity that you might do. Um, but ultimately, this is now the preferred route. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the least costly in terms of kind of lawyers fees and uh, banking <laughs> fees and all the kind of stuff that goes with, uh, you know, uh, corporate transactions. Um, but, yeah, it's it's really because they were sold seven to ten years ago with a shelf life of we're going to have to return capital yeah. um but the lack of the lack of kind of market scrutiny of a value i think is, mm. is concerning yeah okay well but let's come back let's come back to private we, equity we are going to come back to that yeah i'm, I'm intrigued now um so, <laughs> so Darren, what's your story what's, what's story? my story my my one story is um <laughs> from the corporate advisor summit last week where um a friend of this podcast mr andrew warwick thompson um and former tpr director called for the fca to regulate master trusts mm. um you know the the gist of the article was that um the fca should uh the, the regulation and the supervision and the authorization should be transferred to the financial conduct authority because the pensions regulator lacks the necessary skills powers uh, to properly authorize and supervise major financial institutions mm. um i think um at the summit as well i think it was mick mcateer on the session i was on um uh, was talking about um db schemes um being need being should that they should be re regulated by the pra right. um so you you know you can see a, a theme there which is um well you know what is tpr actually going to be doing in the future you know if you've got the the uh, pra um regulating db schemes and um that uh, the fca regulating master trusts but i think um you know this there's always been um chat within the pensions industry about you know does it make sense to have two dc regulators you know should just the pensions regulator do pensions um you know what is the split between the fca and and and, and the tpr um i think usually industry people talk about um you know the the regulation all going to tpr yeah mm -hmm. especially in that from that trust-based world so i thought it was quite interesting that a former tpr director um you know made made this intervention yeah. um and i think it just shows that you know the regulatory framework that we've currently got from a tpr perspective you know while effective um and, or you know usually effective um you know looking being the police of the trustees yeah. Um, when you're when you're getting organisations that are now have now got significant scale and are going to keep um, um, growing and getting even bigger, 
then ultimately you know is it can you can you just use the sort of regulatory principles and approach of the of the past or do you need to to do something that um gives a lot more active supervision and act a, a lot more active oversight and and a lot more active intervention because we know the fca is um a lot more active than um t and interventionists and the pensions regulator yeah i don't know i don't know um I've always thought that, uh, you know, trust-based schemes are different from contracts-based schemes. Yep. Um, and the FCA is is perfectly set up to kind of police that uh, informed consumer who's read some prospectus, potentially sat down with an advisor, and to police that kind of bit of the market. Um, obviously, auto-enrollment damages, uh, you know, pierces the regulatory veil, right, and puts... Uh, uninformed consumers under the auspices of that kind of retail uh, kind of mindset. Um, yeah, I don't know. If the argument is that the pensions regulator is under-resourced and under-skilled, then, then, you know, address that. Mm. Um, if the argument is that um, DC is a systemic risk, um, then the PRA is the home for it. Yep. Um, I, I'd like the FCA regulating the investment parts of the uh, DC master trusts um, and, uh, you know, I think promoting specialism in DC uh, investment teams that way would make a lot of sense to me. But kind of having an overarching regulation uh, as if essentially a member has chosen this product that they were auto enrolled into mm. um, by their employer who maybe themselves didn't look that deeply into the kind of uh, master trust. I, I think that would be a pretty awkward bedfellow. Um, but you get that with GPPs at the moment. Well, oh, indeed. So yeah. there's a whole bunch of uh, perimeter conversations where um, we should we should have a clean piece of paper and go, what makes sense? How do we build a regulator that that kind of makes yeah. sense for it? Yeah. And, um, I, and I think that's I'd, I'd be aligned with that and love a good perimeter conversation, Nico. Um, oh, yeah. I, I don't think we've had a good perimeter conversation on this pod before, but we, we should definitely do a special <laughs> on that. Um, the perk. <laughs> the perg, the perg, yeah, a perg deep dive. <laughs> yeah, but I think I, th I think for me it does come down to the fact that we've had lots of policy interventions and regulatory interventions, and um, you know the system has changed a lot over the past ten to twelve years, mm -hmm. um, and 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 for the better. Um, but I do think that you know you wouldn't start from here in terms of the construct of the market and how you would regulate yeah. these things and i think it's a it's always going to be difficult to to move to something that is optimal because you have different not necessarily best well you do have different vested interests but you also have different spheres of influence of so treasury fca dwp tpr and there's always political conversations and political battles that happen happen at that level um but i do think from a you know an efficiency of the system and an optimization of the system perspective then taking a, a look at this and actually giving a, a proper division of responsibilities between different parties mm. would probably be quite a good step forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other, the other. Sorry, go on. I was there, I, think that, I think that makes sense. I think the other thing that's relevant is for the FCA. You've had quite a big change just in the summer there with the introduction of consumer duty. Mm -hmm. You know, now, now looking at things through that lens, you know, areas where the financial services industry has a lot of material influence. On outcomes for consumers, and if you if you look at a DC Master Trust as millions of members, through that lens, there you know that there's a lot of consumer influence uh, there. So you, you know the, the, there's a you know 
a more recent change that I think is relevant to this as well. Yeah, and I, th I think it's probably only a matter of time before you get something akin to consumer duty. Um, the, no, what, you don't reckon? Trusts. They already have it. This well, is, they, the, they this they is the fundamental misunderstanding. They, 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 they are by they law obliged, right? to uh, act in the interests of beneficiaries and not in their own interests. Yes. You do not introduce consumer duty. You don't need to introduce no, but I think it. it's a That's the FCA trying to build a yeah, picture yeah. No. of investment firms and insurance companies okay. as if they are already trusts, right? I 100% I, 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 I agree with that um, because I remember when I was at Smart, um, we were developing lines to take um, in response to a journalist request, which was should um, consumer duty apply to, to trust-based schemes? And we used right. exactly that argument, yeah? Like the fiduciary duty is already there. Yeah, um, and stronger, and, uh, even and, in the and stronger. In, yeah, yeah. It, it is. But I, what I like about the consumer duty, yeah, is there's some specific stuff, yeah, that um, firms are expected and required to do. Yeah, so it's more prescriptive than just the general, yes, trustees need to act in the beneficiaries of the trust. And I think that's what I mean by not introducing the consumer duty in the trust based space, but actually thinking about some of the um, requirements and the evidence that needs to be produced. Because I think the trust based uh, sector has been guilty sometimes just set by saying, you know, we're the trust based sector, we know what's best for our members, therefore we don't have to evidence this or we don't have to, you know, um, test our communications properly and all of that. So yeah. that, that, that's what I mean by some of this, not just yeah. uh, a lift so and drop. I, I just think we're, there's a big risk that instead of talking about um, the failure of the regulator to oversee the system that is already perfectly designed, um, but just poorly policed. Um, you know, we're instead talking about swapping one set of police with very different attitude to another. And, you know, I come back to if the if the kind of symptom is an understaffed, under-resourced, under-skilled regulator, then, you know, surely redemption, uh, remediation number one is is to address that. Um, I think um, redemption was probably a better phrase, Nico, there. <laughs> Regulatory the, redemption. <laughs> the other piece is, uh, you know, so this is this requires an act of parliament. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah so, yeah. you know, this is got to become part of Labour policy, assuming that, um, you know, the, the glitterati <laughs> are, um, are elected. Right. So so I dare say I, I think we can increasingly assume that Labour will um, at least be the largest minority party, if not a majority in the next parliament. Uh, so, so I think they've probably got a list of of laws that they're looking to to kind of get through. To, and, and to, this won't be top of the list. <laughs> this, I, I'd, I'd struggle to see how it beats, you know, everything that was talked about in conference this this week. Um, indeed, indeed. So, yeah, uh, I'm a massive fan of of Andrew, um, and uh, whenever he speaks, it's wise, and um, people do listen. So, um, yeah, fully support his uh, his direction, but I wouldn't uh, <laughs> wouldn't hold out much hope. Yeah, <laughs> coming soon. <laughs> so um, we've done the news. Yeah, we keep getting longer with the news, Nico. It's because our guests keep bringing two stories. That's that's <laughs> it. We'll, we'll blame our guests. So um, slap wrist, Alistair. Um, but you know, the, the, the next question we always ask is how you got into pensions. So um, be quite interested to to hear about your fantastic career to date. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's kind of. Long, long and winding journey. I, I, I guess, I guess the starting point is, you know, sort of 
you know, high school days, you're kind of you know, shaping your interests. And, uh, you know, I was definitely interested in sort of economics and markets and, you know, sort of looking at my dad's Sunday times on the weekend and the <laughs> business section and stuff like that. So that, that, that led me into economics at university and, you know, starting to kind of understand investment markets. And, and, and that led on to, you know, thinking that investment management Hmm. Uh, would would be a good career, and I I, I started with uh, Scottish Equitable, so what what's now Aegon UK, hmm. uh, in the the early 1990s. Uh, strangely enough, as an analyst covering Japanese equities, so I was sitting choosing between should we invest in Toyota or should we invest in Honda and things like that. Which <laughs> slightly curious thing to be doing in your kind of early <laughs> 20s sitting in Edinburgh but you know not, not, nonetheless that was and did it. you have to get up like ridiculously early in the morning to kind of see Japanese markets or did you just do the research really, during our, the day our, and... our, our brokers did we had to get uh-huh, and find right. out what they've done o- overnight so that, that was an interesting start to the career and then it, I kind of moved more into sort of asset allocation and investment strategy so they're more kind of macro mm-hmm. type stuff which I think was a better fit for my mm. interest but I, I think candidly I wasn't terribly sure whose money it was that we were uh-huh. managing you know you have the portfolio and you're <laughs> making all these decisions but you don't you don't necessarily think well who's, who's the beneficiary of all this you've got your benchmark and you've got your job that, mm. that you need to do but you know over time I, I came to understand that it was mainly pensions money and a lot of it was it was DC you know it's mm. kind of smaller corporate DC and uh, so I got a bit more interested in the beneficiary side of it and one of the things I was looking at was behavioural finance, and I, and I started looking at it in the view of, you know, does the stock market overreact? Does this behavioural finance give you, you know, an edge in terms of mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. investment decision making? There's a, a lot of research uh, around that time coming out on that, so that, that was quite interesting. But as I looked at that, I came across the behavioural finance applied to personal or household finance decisions. So I know you guys have talked about it on prior calls, you know, the Bernatian mm. Thaler, the Saving mm-hmm, Tomorrow, the automatic enrollment, the, you know, the one over N mm, diversification. Yeah. So I started looking at that and thinking, that, that's, this stuff's more important. You know, this, uh-huh. this is more of an impact. It doesn't, I'm not sure whether how much it matters for the stock market overreacts, but, you know, I'm really interested in the, the biases that affect people's personal mm. financial decisions. So I, I got really interested in that. And ultimately, I, I think, as you both know, you know, left the investment management industry to join academia and and research some of those issues at firstly at South Clyde University and then at then at Edinburgh. And my, my research was largely around those kind of issues about decision making and, and personal finance and particularly DC. And having come from an industry background, I you know I did a lot of consulting and you know working with beams and providers. I did a lot of you know sort of uh, DC behavioral finance training, you know, talking to trustee mm-hmm. boards about you know the nudges that might be there and talking to schemes that say we don't have a default you know well 85 percent of your investors are choosing this fund and it's the first mm-hmm. one on the list of the form so you know <laughs> i think you do have a default you're just yeah. governing it the way that you right. that, that you might do so that, that you know that, that that was an interesting time you've got a lot of flexibility in academia to pursue you know things you're interested in and a good a good good platform but Towards the end of that period, I was doing more consulting than I was researching, and right. you know, kind of had to admit that was my that was my sort of destination. And from there, moved into consulting, including a, a stint at, at Willis with uh, Nico and you know James Colgrave and Kevin Stratford and all these yes. people, and advising some of the, the the bigger DC schemes in the in the UK, which again was you know a lot of fun and you know a lot of clients who were had the scale and the ambition to do quite mm. quite interesting mm. yeah. things. So yeah. that was good and. 
So can I just ask, can I just interject there, Alistair, what was Nico like to work with? A fount of good ideas and inspiration, and then a lot of other people had to try and make make, make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> or tell them that the idea wasn't possible to be made happen. That, like, that, was, uh, that was the case sometimes. But yeah, I think we had probably fun listened. on that team. Yeah, we did. We did. Um, I was I was very disappointed when when you took your current role, uh, which uh, is, must be. Have you done ten years now? At, at Not SSGA? quite. So it's just just over nine. Yeah. Just yeah. Nine. Yeah. Um, but uh, I knew I knew that was uh, you know your your heart was set on it when you told me. Um, yeah, we were in um, Tothill Street, weren't we? Um, did you make it? You didn't come as far as uh, as Hoban when when uh, Towers Watson got there, did you? No, I was still on yeah. Tothill Street. I had a, a desk by the window, and by my window was a wall. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and on the floor were mouse traps. And um, every so often, if you went up to the sixth floor, you would see the mice uh, kind of scuttling around. Um, it was. Uh, it was a pretty grotty building, it's fair to say, um, with lots and lots of uh, lovely people and smart people inside of it. But it was a pretty horrid building. Very, very smart people and a lot that I'm still in touch with and a lot that mm. I'm still working with. So, you know, it's been a, a, you know, a good kind of a alumni experience from it. Mm. Mm. It's now a hotel. <laughs> it's very bizarre. What yeah. yeah. mice yeah. Well, uh, I don't think you can get rid of the mice in Westminster. That's the <laughs> so many breeding grounds for them in the ministries. <laughs> yeah, and then it moves on to the the, the largely mouse-free State Street, uh, <laughs> and the you know that was to work with sort of Nigel Aston, Dan Lutie, mm. and it was about sort of building up our European DC business, a very large US DC player, and you know had some clients in the in the UK but you know they wanted to sort of grow that business so you know joined to do that and again you know re really great time in the career a lot of focus on participant research really trying to understand the DC market and then build things that would you know work for participants and you know that's as, as I just said you know been here nine years still involved in DC but now, now have a kind of wider commercial responsibility that covers DB, DC mm. and, and, and wealth management but you know same focus you know yeah Trying to make products and solutions that will give better outcomes for savers, whether they're in DB plans, DC plans, or you know, working in you know the, the wealth management sector. Mm. And that's where we first met, wasn't it? Really properly um, when yeah. um, people's pension um, switched to State Street as the on, on the investment side of things. And and there's two things I remember working with you very closely on. One was the um, New Choices Big Decisions research, um, which was tracking people um, and the decisions they made post freedom and choice. And um, that's still going strong, I hear, Alistair, and um, you, you keep revisiting the research and stuff, which is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that was that was fun to do, you know, and developing the personas and really trying to get some of that um real insight into you know the barriers for people you know when it came to decision making at retirement and not, not necessarily from a nine out of ten cats perspective or anything like that but you know real life stories that really you know brought um the you know the issues to the fore and a little birdie tells me then and, and another version of this is going to drop soon is is that right that, is this an, is it, it is this a VFM podcast exclusive our first one <laughs> Nico? I think I think it could be this because of uh we, we... Yeah, so we've done a number of wave it, waves. It's a you know real kind of longitudinal study. We we still have a number of the participants that were in the first wave, sort of yeah. 2015, 16, that are still kind of giving us updates. And they, you know, they've moved from a sort of I'll take my tax-free cash out and do something fun with it through to 
you know, I'm now at the point where I need a retirement income. And it's, yeah, it's interesting yeah. to see that transition. And uh, we see a lot of life events as well. Mm, people yeah. leaving work, going back to work, you know, health issues, family issues. So, you know, it is really rich, you know, gives you much more insight than the, as you say, the eight out of 10 cats kind of, mm. do you want to buy an annuity uh, type <laughs> research? So we're, we're on wave five. I think the question's always, you know, why should we do another wave? What What's different? What what new angle mm. should we have? And I think this time it's, it's, it's you know, it's really worthwhile in the sense you've got the, the cost of living crisis issues that people have seen inflation at, you know, much higher rates than they would have anticipated. So some of the decisions they made wouldn't have been made with, you know, 5%, 10% inflation rates mm. Mm. Uh, in mind. So, you know, we're seeing that real big changes in interest rates that, you know, mean decisions about how to save your money, where to save your money, about whether to have an annuity or other approaches. The terms of those decisions are substantially different from what they were mm. even mm. a couple of years ago. So I think it's a really good time mm. uh, to come back and, and look at that. And we're, we're just finalising that at the moment. Uh, I think if I gave away the headlines of it, I'd be in trouble with Phil Brown. So I'm going to kind of hang back on that, but to say that we'll, <laughs> be, we'll be publishing that in the in the next month or so. And then, you know, sure a lot of the the people listening to the podcast will will, will have sight of, of that and you know yeah. hopefully get get some uh, you know use and some value out of it and i did have a conversation with philip um to say you know when the research is published we should get him on to to talk about that as well which will be mm. which will be good yeah. um no that's great and, and and the other thing we worked on at the time and i remember this fondly um was um disclosure of transaction costs do you remember that project we worked on and i think this this we were at the culmination of that just as you started consulting yes. nico for for, for for tpp yeah 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 um that's, and you you put it in my lap and went, isn't this brilliant? And I was like, what's a transaction cost? <laughs> <laughs> but that was a first as well, wasn't it? Like, I, mean, I know there was lots of debates and discussion around the time about disclosure of transaction costs. And I know we we, we set up a project um, and, you know, we we, we we spent it. It took us quite a while, didn't it? But we, we worked through all the issues. We mm. developed a methodology and, you know, it was a, a, you know I'd say it's a, a, you know, a good achievement to get that out. And um, to demonstrate that transparency. Yeah, I think, that, I think the, the commitment to transparency was always there. It's just when you get into it, you realise the complexity as well. Exactly, you know, where, yeah. where is the data? What does it mean? Will it, yeah. will it be, you know, misleading in any way? Is it clean? Yeah. Uh, you know, so we said, yeah, we should, you know, we should do this. It's, it's the members' money. They have the, you know, not not that many of them are going to be interested in it, but they have the right to know. There might yeah. be, yeah. you know, uh, you know, analysts and others who can, you know, look at it and, and you know, give opinions to members on it. So. It's important that information is is out there, but yeah, it's yeah. a lot lot of detail and a lot of you know work to get it in a form that's yeah. digestible. And you know, we felt it was the right thing to go through and, and do that. And now it's pretty standard. Yeah, mm. but, you know, back then it was a lot of you know whiteboard sessions saying, you know, it how was, are you going to do this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I just remember when we had negative transaction costs on the mm. corporate bonds, like the year or two after I I joined um and uh kind of briefing the helpline just in case a member asked the question <laughs> <laughs> what does this mean well <laughs> well how do we say this simply um yeah i mean I, it was great work to pull out the, the the transaction costs and sort out that data i still don't really understand whether the the regulatory purpose of that policy has been achieved um 
there was the CMA that came from, didn't it? And the the it was, you know, this this market is massively dysfunctional. Employers don't seem to know where they're putting their money. Um, all of this kind of uh, big picture stuff. Oh, and by the way, nobody discloses transaction costs. Isn't that a bit odd? Yeah. And uh, between them, TPR and FCA going like, well, we can do something about that one. Let's 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 address that one. Let's put transaction costs into the kind of disclosures. Um, so yeah, I, I think a bit of the feedback around value for money. Essentially said there was one question which said should this go should value for money assessments go into the chair statements or the reports and accounts, um, and some of the responses said could you just clear stuff out of the chair statement for us? There's a lot of kind of dross that's been left and 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 uh, yeah transaction costs is one of them. So um, now that it's being disclosed, I think uh, oh, now that it's being sent to investment teams, I'm not I'm not sure whether it needs to continue to be disclosed. Um, but the trustees should have a statement saying we looked at it and they're fine, or I don't know. But um, yeah, it was a great piece of work. I think there was a narrative for the time as well. It was saying, you know, kind of the, the, all these hidden costs, mm. you know, and people saying, you know, if, if the hidden costs are, you know, 100 basis points, then it reduces your pot of retirement by mm, mm, mm. 30%. And that's a really bad thing for members. And, you know, that's logically true. But, you know, when we then went and did the work and, you know, it's, it's not 100 basis points, you know, it's, yeah. it's typically a small single digit number for you yeah. know, the index based strategies that a lot of schemes are, are using. Yeah. So I think it's good to get that information out there. And so yeah, yeah. absolutely this yeah. this hasn't been transparent, but now it is. Yeah. You can you can see that it's not the, the issue that you might have thought that, mm. that it was. Yeah. Is this a good segue, Nico? Why not? <laughs> Go on then. All oh, right. <laughs> Alistair, uh what does value for money mean to you? Go back a few years, I did some work with the CFA Institute. We had a working group looking at value for money uh, before some of the sort of more recent consultations, but just sort of thinking about it from an industry perspective. And and we ended up kind of summarising or having a discussion around, so, you know, the clues in the, in the, the language, it's about the value mm. and it's also about the money. Yeah. And, and sort of breaking it down in, in, in those terms. And when, when you do that, you get this kind of asymmetry that mm. comes through that, that the money is pretty tangible. Mm. So a 50 basis point scheme costs more than a 20 basis point scheme and it costs more every year. Mm. So it's pretty clear and, uh, and it's pretty predictable. And so that, you know, enters into your equation that, you know, you, you know that side of it pretty well. Uh, the value is a bit more subjective in cases. It's a bit more nebulous uh, and often a bit more uncertain. Mm -hmm. uh, as well so you know if you're weighing up value and money and you know one's quite solid and the other one's you know a lot less solid it's it's it's, it's a difficult thing to do so you know what is better service and how much is it worth paying for that you can probably define mm -hmm. you know what is better service but then saying well how, you know how much should that equate to in terms of additional fees is quite challenging and i think on the investment side you can look at past returns you can say that scheme a has done better than scheme b uh, and you can take a view of whether that was historical value for money, but you, you can't buy that historical performance. All you're buying is you know, the future mm. performance mm. and that sort of forward-looking assessment. So, you know, it's pretty challenging. I think it's the right question to be asked in the industry, but pretty hard to come up with an equation that tells you the tells you the, the, the answer and has got me on to kind of thinking about sort of the, the debate about private markets and the liquids. Yeah. And, and wrapped up in that is that, Typically, these strategies are more costly, mm -hmm. uh, and you know the arguments: you pay more, but you get better net 
risk-adjusted returns. I think if you you know you go to the academic evidence on that, it's mixed. There's definitely evidence of good returns, but there's you know some other studies that that, that you know not not everyone's benefiting from those good returns. Certainly on a net basis. So not every trustee makes the choice to come into mm. those private markets is, is going to get better outcomes. Some you know, some will, some some won't. Some will at points in time and and, and not at others. I think you know. That, that sort of illustrates that sort of value for money lens. You've got something that, that's almost certainly going to cost you more. Yeah. Uh, and, and may or may not, you know, do, deliver improved value. And I think for a fiduciary, that's always a really tricky kind of process to work through. And I, yeah. I guess that's how we get back to the, you know, relentless focus on cost. It's very hard mm-hmm. to get away from that when the benefits are, you know, uncertain and the, and the costs are, are, you know, much, much more solid and, and, and tangible. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of the debate about, you know what can we do as an industry to you know encourage and incentivize you know more investment in the liquids doesn't really deal with that issue of the weighing up higher costs for certain versus you know un- uncertain future benefits mm-hmm. so I'm, mm-hmm. not, I'm not sure how helpful that is but i think that's the, <laughs> you know that's 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 a challenge it's the right question but the get, getting to the answer is uh yeah more more challenging because there's there's two sorry Darren so there's there's sort of two circles here right so so I think um there's a sort of investment return circle where we could discuss whether returning what the index delivers when the index is at minus who knows (laughs) 20 percent and you know a passive manager would accurately give you minus 20 percent an active manager would give you a spread hopefully on both sides of the 20%, uh, depending on which active manager you have. A, a, a private equity manager might give you an even bigger spread or be less coupled with the market. Discuss. Mm. Um, so there's sort of, and, and all of those, uh, all of those things are uncertain and out into the future. But when I've done my 50 years of defined contribution and I've got maybe into decumulation and there's a whole other topic, uh, but I could look historically and see how my returns were. Um, and I might even be able to attribute some of the decisions between sort of major asset classes, um, major styles. So there's a sort of investment box where at some point in the future, I may be able to talk about the returns and how much they cost and risk adjusted and have a, a fair assessment, I think, of those things, albeit in a historical context, which will be different for the next generation. Mm. There's then another circle around that where, as you said, I'm trying to weigh up the cost of good service or the cost of choice or the cost of communications or the cost of uh, good governance which may contribute to the middle circle but may also do another number of other things right um so uh, you know how do you when you did that cfa work was that kind of how you were thinking about it that there's this thing that we can't know now but we will know in the future and then there's this thing that we may never know um and and can we put them on the same footing it's a lot of the work was just sort of breaking down the components mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and ultimately getting the point that there, there is a sort of subjective assessment of the components against each other. That it was, yeah. And I think at that time, there, there was a bit of a drive to have it a bit more prescriptive and a bit more sort of, you know, arithmetic. And I think it was a challenge to say, well, you're, you're not going to get to that point. It's good that we identify the components. We focus people's attention on each component. Mm-hmm. But, you know, ultimately, it's a judgment call to weigh up one versus the other and you know ultimately it's a judgment call of how you interpret past performance results as a you know a guide to what you've got in the, in the future uh, mm-hmm. you know, whether you think there's a you know something there that 
that indicates persistence and you can you can infer that what you got in the past is you know a fair guide to the future or whether it you know that's not something that you can do yeah yeah so i i interrupted you down no no not at all no i was just going to come back to oh, this is such a big topic um <laughs> that's why we're doing so many podcasts okay um, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but one of the things that we've discussed quite a lot is the split between admin and investment and um, one of the conclusions that the DWP, I think, have come to is to split out admin and investment costs. Yeah. Um, Alistair, do you have any views on that? Do you, do, is, that is that a helpful thing? Um, you know, how does that sort of contribute to, you know, better, better decision making and a, and a better assessment of value for money going forward? I, th I think ultimately it's probably helpful. I think it's good you know, for an interested member to know, you know, what the proportions are in broad terms you know how much are we spending on generating the returns versus the the administration so i think it's hard to resist that i think it's kind of again kind of harder in practice than in theory because you have to sort of disentangle you know you, you could think about the money you're paying away to an investment manager but you know what when you have an in-house team mm -hmm. you know, how, how, yeah. how do you deal with the investment administration side yeah. of it you know the, yeah. the, the you know the funds administration rather than the member administration so again it becomes quite an exercise to disentangle it all and and you know different schemes will have different structures and therefore the line will be drawn at, at different places in terms mm. of you know what's investment costs paid away to third party versus investment costs generated mm. internally i think you know think about the big bundled insurance propositions i imagine it's you know might be easy to identify a fee paid to a manager but there's a lot of investment infrastructure yes on yep. the insurer side which you know do you want which side of the house do you want to put that on and mm. if one insurer makes a decision to put it one way and then and someone else you know chooses to draw the line in a different place then you, you you've got a lot of data but not a lot of comparability mm. and, and, and insight so a bit like our transaction costs i think when you open up the box you realize it's uh you know more complicated and it, it won't get done as quickly as people will hope because yeah. it's hard and there's stuff mm. to be worked through to get to the you know the most helpful and most reliable set of numbers yeah mm. interesting yeah I, I i do wonder whether if you go down that path and i, I you know i am supportive um, so, so it's worth us taking a step back briefly darren so, so so one of the challenges that it, it, if i work for a small employer i pay more in pension in mm. pension fees um uh, for the same investment proposition as i would if i work for a larger employer yeah. so um you know I, one is paying 40 let's say another is paying 20 until we can pull out okay 10 of this is in the investment costs for uh you know the, the the proposition that i've got and so therefore you know if you're small you're you've paid 30 and if you're large you've paid 10 on the administration and governance mm. or whatever you put on that side of the line until you get to that then you can't really have an employer market mm. because uh actually the employer doesn't know whether the 40 here is comparable to the 40 there because they don't know essentially where is that a cheaper investment product and a better and a more expensive administrator or vice versa? Yeah. yeah. So um, I think it, it's worth kind of just stepping, taking that step back. So, so, but just then, does the separation of those costs eventually lead you to have a sort of sense of conflict of interest between the kind of manufacturing business, as in investment, mm. and the distribution 
an administration business i.e the kind of insurance company itself or the provider or the and so do you have this kind of supply chain separation that, that you can see in a number of different industries right yeah um i think there's an interesting kind of thread to pull there that's definitely a pensions act <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay. some, some of it's vertically integrated it's the same organization yeah. some's yeah. not you know again so it gets messy mm. yeah so i think it's going to be messy right um it, it, it to me and this is where I, I think you could put value for money assessments on the investment part they would have that awkwardness of really dealing with your beliefs about the future um and uh but but you know the fca and consumer duty does essentially put those duties on fund managers um uh, and the way that they are you know there'll be a very very neat transposing on the investment part between those the value for money consumer duty on that kind of uh, um uh, distribution administration bit takes in all of these squishy things which the trustees in some way are saying, oh, I think you, this person who's not engaged, values this thing in this way, right? Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a sort of absurdity. Um, I was going to ask you, Alistair, does, does, obviously you, you, you've spent a lot of time thinking about behavioural finance. Does that give you kind of insight as to whether, uh, you know, what people value in pensions, I guess, A, and B, does that align to what the industry thinks people value in pensions? Yeah, not 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 sure the direct read across mm. there um i think people value you know pe people value certainty they don't like the volatility they don't like the idea that their you know pot's been invested in markets and will go up and down a lot a lot of you know what we want to put in front of people is telling them more information on, on returns and how, how yeah. things have, have panned out and you know that, that's probably not particularly helpful because i think uh it unsettles people to know that their hard end savings are at risk in the markets and mm. that, you know and that's probably to their benefit in the long run with equity premium and yeah. uh, returns on risky assets but uh, you know they're not going to enjoy the process of, mm. of of getting there so but in terms of sort of pure value for money lunch i'm not no, i'm not sure mm. um because a lot of the the use of pension decision making in the kind of value for money sorry in the behavioral finance academics was around decision making, wasn't it? So, so there was the the fee treatments and where, like, you know, I think finance guys in Harvard um, didn't bother to notice the fees um, and uh, kind of I can't remember did they choose on the basis of alphabetical order or just like some excitement? <laughs> I can't remember. Um, and then the one that um, so the joining the pension scheme, um, you can have the room full of people and get seventy five percent of people raising their hands to say join the pension scheme. But if you don't have the form there, then um, that 75% you actually manage to transact like five to 10%, I think it was. Um, but if you have the form there, you get close to 75% and take it off them and say you've now joined, right? Yeah. Um, so there's some really, really good kind of pensions case studies in the behavioral finance literature. But mm. um, yeah, that sort of arbitration between kind of hard things and soft things, that's the impossible job we're giving trustees, right? That's, yeah. uh, it's going to be fun to find out what they do with it. <laughs> yeah. I think that, yeah, the, you bring up that the focus will be on the salient things, you know, the, the, mm. the near term things, the more tangible things that those will drive people's decisions, uh, mm. like rather than the sort of intangible and, and further away mm. benefits. So again, coming back, thinking what's your framing, you know, how, how yeah. have you positioned that? What's the nudge in here? What's the, yeah. What will people's attention be drawn to? 
Yeah. I suppose going back to the behavioural finance more generally, if you're only allowed one behavioural finance finding, it's inertia. For, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the, the most overwhelmingly relevant for DC pensions is inertia. Yeah. You know. yeah. I assume that most members will do nothing, read nothing, and you know that's not completely true. But as a, as a kind of you know working hypothesis, that's probably a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah, you'll be closer to the nine out of ten people um, than you would in, in terms of other surveys by making that assumption, I would mm. argue. And then design things to create good outcomes for people yeah. in that circumstance. And, yeah. you know, I think by and large, if you do that, then, the, you know, the people who are more engaged will be able to get good outcomes as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, my, my favourite um, was the uh, the one over end diversification. Um, so I, 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 I always used to refer to that as the Swedish model um, and people go, oh, um, <laughs> no, no, no. So it's the, the, the reform of the Swedish pension system where everybody was allowed to submit uh, a fund to put, in, put into what became essentially a telephone book. That's uh, that's outdated language, isn't it? Um, mm. But a, a big, a big uh, collection of, I think, 600 funds. Um, and, uh, you know, the most popular option of people kind of forced to make a choice was to to essentially put one six hundredth into everything. <laughs> um, like, OK, fair enough. I don't know. And therefore, I'm just going to spread spread across the whole the whole choice range. So I um I watched and this is up above nothing now, but um, I, it's, it's, it's a telephone book comment. But I, okay, um, I was go. watching Black, Back to the Future. Uh, the first one the other day um, with my with my daughters. I said it would be a good one for them to watch because it's an absolutely fantastic film. Mm. Um, and, you know, there was there's bits in there where he's using a, a, a Walkman uh, with a cassette right. tape. Um, and, and, and the kids, you know, they what's that? <laughs> what, what What is this? You know, what is that? Is that really a Tilly? You know, the cars <laughs> really used to look like that. You know, um, so, yeah, it, it just shows how much things have changed and stuff. Um, what year do they go forward to? Is it 2013? 20, 20, so, so, so this in this in the first one, I think they it's what was it 1984 or 85? I think it came out. Right. Yeah, and they go back. Yeah. Yes. Um. So, yeah, I think it's in the second one that they might mm. go forward, and you know, I think it's I think it was 2018 or something, and you know, you're expecting to have hoverboards and all of that type of stuff. So, yeah. you know. But anyway, yet to come, yet to come. I feel let down. The the child Nico was promised a whole bunch of things in the future, and you know, very few of them have come to pass. Um, but I, I I think we're probably at time, aren't we, Darren? We are, yeah. But but did did child, was child Nico promised that he would be the star of a VFM Pensions podcast? Um, not you know, in is, is, so many words. No. Um, but uh, you know, maybe that was hinted at, Darren. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and 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 speaking of stars, speaking of stars, Alistair, thank you very much um, for for being our guest today. Mm. Um, some great insight there. I don't know whether to call you the doctor or the professor now, um, but you know, but to get that some of that academic um, grounding in this stuff is great. And you, I, I, well, I shouldn't introduce this now, but you've also got oh, a no. startup with David Blake, haven't you? Um, which we, which I was hoping we would get to talk about, but we, we, we don't have time. But maybe we can pick up on that. But what's, what's the one-liner on that? The, the one-liner on that is we make risk profiling questionnaires that financial advisors would use as part of the fact find so you know one of the questions in the advice process is you know how comfortable are you with investment uh, risk yeah uh, and our questionnaire just helps the advisor have a good conversation 
with a client and, and draw out the trade-offs that are there. You, know, yeah. you, you can choose not to take investment risk, but that will have an impact on your the level of your outcomes and the key things for the advisor to yeah. you know, work, work that through with the client and reconcile the, the trade-offs and our questionnaire helps them helps them do that. And you do that with David Blake, don't you? I think, is that right? Uh, David Blake's a partner on that. Partner, and a couple yeah. other directors yeah. that we work with. It's very fair. Yeah. That's great. Small, yeah, no. small and niche business. Well, you know, it's um, pensions, isn't it? It's niche. Not necessarily <laughs> small, but it's certainly niche. Um, but no, but I, what I love about that and the reason I wanted to mention it is it's it's bringing that sort of academic behavioural, mm. you know, framing into something that is practically useful for the industry as well. Um, so, yeah, no, good work on that. Look forward to hearing yeah. a bit more about that as well. Appreciate mm. your interest in that. And yeah, thanks yeah. for having me on. It's been a good, good discussion and we, right. we could have gone on. Oh, we could have done it, yeah, yeah. And um, so, uh, Nico, who's up next? Uh, we got Margaret Snowden next. We have got her. Yeah, I was was testing you. Yeah, so we've got Margaret Snowden next week. Um, I'm up at the PLSA. Mm. Um, so looking forward to that. Are you up there, Alistair? Uh, yeah, we'll be up there. State Street will be out in force. So excellent. See you all there. See you up there, and um, so yeah, so we're recording next Friday morning, okay? Yeah, um, just to make sure you've got that in your diary. Um, <laughs> as so, ever, so, as so ever. I won't be in PLSA land, uh, so I'll be having a quiet week actually doing some work. Ah, um, which, which will be fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Alistair, you've been a star, um, been absolutely great to have you on. Thank you so much. Um, so that's it until next mm. time. It's bye from me, it's bye from me. Thank you very much. Goodbye.